How can rules of engagement assure compliance with the laws of war when those fighting war seem to do so without any basic consideration of humanity? The answer requires revisiting the laws and customs of war, sometimes called international humanitarian law. Welcome to the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, a retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and one-time instructor at the Army's Command at General Staff College and the Naval War College. Now, this series of podcasts presents what I think every citizen should know about war, peace, and the gray area in between. As citizens of a representative democracy, this information should help you in your participation in the most serious decisions a country can make. In this podcast, episode 78 in this series, I'll build on the previous episode of Rules of Engagement and describe things to keep in mind when evaluating the utility of ROE in complying with the laws of war. Now, in that previous episode on Rules of Engagement, I said that the purpose of ROE is to assure that the use of military force orients on achieving national policy objectives. ROE applies this force in a way that is consistent with the laws and customs of war. War is fundamentally different than peace. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. Acts that are ordinarily criminal in nature are necessary in war. These include deliberate killing, assault, destruction, or forced appropriation of property, and deprivation of liberty. Almost two centuries ago, Napoleonic General Antoine-Henri Jomini wrote that the laws and customs of war intend to restrain the destructive force of war while recognizing its inexorable necessities. And this is the practical purpose of ROE. Given the purpose of ROE, and considering current events, it's probably worthwhile to review some points made in previous podcasts, and particularly episode 56 on the continuing relevance of the law of war. It seems unfortunately common to use the term war crime for almost anything the person reporting it doesn't like. Not only are many claims of war crimes inaccurate, but this can lead to semantic satiation, with the term becoming less meaningful through repetition. In other words, it can inure people to real war crimes, the kinds of things the leaders of the Axis powers were hanged for after the end of World War II. According to the International Committee of the Red Cross, not all violations of the laws and customs of war are war crimes. According to the Red Cross, war crimes are particularly serious violations of international humanitarian law, which is also known as the law of war, affecting non-combatants or protected objects such as schools, houses, and churches, or violating important international values. War crimes are a matter of individual responsibility, and accused persons should be held criminally accountable. Within the Geneva Conventions, specified war crimes include willful killing, that is, murder, torture, or inhumane treatment, including biological experiments willfully causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health, extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly, compelling a prisoner of war, any non-combatant or otherwise protected person, to serve in the forces of a hostile power, willfully depriving a prisoner of war or other protected person of the rights of fair and regular trial, unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement of a protected person, and taking of hostages. Now, these crimes relate to state-on-state -state conflict, where both sides are parties to the Geneva Conventions, such as is the case with Russia and Ukraine. 
Most armed conflict, however, seems to be among states and non-state groups, such as ISIS, Hezbollah, or the former FARC in Colombia. In these non-international armed conflicts, the war crimes include many of the things that I already listed above, and they're summarized in what's called Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions. And this includes intentional killing or murder, mutilation or maiming of persons taking no active part in hostilities, torture, cruel or inhumane treatment, rape, sexual abuse or sexual assault, taking of hostages, and performing biological experiments. This may seem like a lot, but the list is not exhaustive, just as the Geneva Conventions don't include all the laws and customs of war. For example, war crimes under U.S. law include elements from the Hague Conventions on Land Warfare. Some of these are not covered by the Geneva Conventions. The things I listed above, however, which are considered grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, indicate the level of violence that can be considered a war crime. It's inevitable that in war, non-combatant civilians will be killed and injured, and property that should be protected will be damaged and destroyed. Such destruction, if incidental to an otherwise lawful attack, is not considered a war crime. One of the purposes of ROE is to control the risk of such unintended death and destruction. Just to make things even more complex, not all countries are parties to all the treaties or conventions that make up the formal laws of war. Therefore, what may be a war crime in one country may not in another. An example is Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions. About 20 countries, including the United States and Israel, are not parties to that protocol. Another 37 countries filed reservations rejecting or providing different interpretations of different articles of the protocol, and less than half of the countries that ratified it accepted the provision of an international fact-finding commission. Some of the charges leveled against Israel and past charges against the United States involve allegations derived from that additional protocol. This includes accusations of indiscriminate attack, using a definition rejected not only by the United States and Israel, but also it was rejected in most of the reservations filed by countries that did ratify that additional protocol. This leads to another point, that not all governments have the same interpretation of what the language in various law of war treaties mean. Over and above that, certain law of war terms have no internationally agreed definitions. I already mentioned the difficulties with the definition of war crime. Another non-agreed term is direct participation in hostilities, which is important to knowing how and when a civilian loses his or her protected status and can be attacked. Even the term military necessity is, of necessity, vague. Now, these terms do have very long definitions, but they are subject again to interpretation, and not everybody interprets the definitions of the terms the same way. Such is international law. All of this means that the drafting and implementation of rules of engagement are critically important to assure that the destructive forces of war are focused on what is necessary and in a way that is consistent with that nation's specific responsibilities under the laws and customs of war. Given the complexities I just described, how can any ROE do that? Well, this is why it's important that the law of war experts from the armed forces must be integral to the ROE drafting process. At the operational level, determining the limits of military necessity, the restrictions, 
and even the permissions under the laws and customs of war require commanders and military lawyers to work together. If the senior level leaders are doing their part, it shouldn't be that hard at the lower levels where soldiers, airmen, sailors, and marines are the ones applying those destructive forces. Training those fighting men and women in understanding and applying ROE in combat is critical. Under the pressure of combat, however, if they only remember the summary in the Operation Desert Storm ROE, then they won't go far wrong. Fight only combatants. Attack only military targets. Spare civilian persons and objects. Restrict destruction to what your mission requires. So what does this mean to you as citizens of a republic? Of course, you'll come to your own conclusions about that, but there's a few points I would suggest. The most important thing to remember is that although war is an act of violence intended to force an opponent to submit to our will, the force which may be used is terrible, yet not unconstrained. Next, acts of violence which seem to be excessive may not be contrary to the laws and customs of war. We should be cautious about making claims based upon news sources where the priority seems to be being the first to report rather than reporting accurately. Over 2,000 years ago, the Greek writer Aeschylus noted that the first casualty in war is truth. Sources quick to declare something is a war crime are either being sloppy or they're trying to manipulate you. It follows then that the claims of war crimes in the news or even by so-called experts should be treated the same way that we should treat allegations of civilian crimes as allegations subject to investigation and, we hope, judgment by an independent and fair tribunal. Most important, that we should work with our government representatives to enable and promote such investigations and judicial proceedings, whether by appropriate court-martial or an international tribunal established for that purpose. As I say in many of these podcasts, the only acceptable outcome of any war is a more just and sustainable peace. Justice, pursuant to allegations of war crimes through either judgment or acquittal, is necessary for that sustainable peace. In the next episode, I'll move away from the inexorable necessity for the destructive force of war and its rules of engagement to the use of military force in a peacetime context and the rules for the use of force. For now, if you like this, if you thought this was useful, then hit like, subscribe, or follow, and join me next time on the ancient art of modern warfare.